Welcome to season four of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope that will breathe life into your service, family, and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm honored to take this opportunity to invest in you. Hi, this is Lori Simmons with Armed Forces Insurance, and you're listening to Life Giver. Welcome to another episode of the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. Um, I hope that you're enjoying season four. The last couple episodes on addiction and alcoholism were honestly one of my favorite episodes, um, my favorite series, simply because it was such a great, honest conversation. If you've not listened to my conversation with my good friend, Alyssa, who opened up about her marriage um, on addiction and alcoholism, please go back and listen to it. It was so amazing. Um, the Weathers team has officially PCS again. I'm on the other side of that and I'm back to work. Um, it took about a month and I realized and thought a lot about this whole PCS thing. Those of you who are military and are used to doing that, that it's really not easy because it takes like a whole month, longer than a month actually. But when it comes down to it, like to get your house ready and then to drive to wherever you're going and wait for that housing and to get in and to get settled takes a good whole month of your life and that can be exciting but it can also be stressful so i am happy to be back in my new office um, that pretty much looks the same as the old office but just in a different state and so the house just happens to be quiet today and i wanted to put out another episode and today's topic is a heavy one Um, i know that that is pretty serious coming off of two episodes on alcoholism But um, I realized another topic that I had not really addressed head on to this point, and I've kind of covered it in some very general ways, some high level concept ways. Um, And but that is the topic of affair recovery. And I've I know I've put out some stuff on how to protect your marriage from affair. Um, I even did an episode on how to handle um, sinful behavior in a Christian marriage, um, boundary setting, all these kinds of things. Um, But I've not addressed specifically what to do or what I usually do with couples um, when they're recovering from an affair. So that's what today's topic is on. Life Giver is all about honest conversation and we're going to go there and we're going to be really honest. And, um, and I know it's tough to hear, but I think it's a really important topic for those of you who have infidelity in the story of your marriage. Um, also for those of you who come across friends who have gone through this as well. And I find that as I work with couples who have experienced infidelity in the relationship, that many of them try to go about healing from infidelity in their own way. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what I've found is that you don't make progress very quickly doing it on your own. You have to have support. You have to have resources. And I find that if you're trying to do it by yourself, it's going to take you so much longer than it should if you both are willing to work on things and utilize the support around you. So today's episode is going to be all about what I typically do with couples that I work with, whether it's a physical affair, an emotional affair, um, a financial betrayal, any kind of betrayal that happens in a relationship. I use typically this same strategy and I'm going to tell you guys that strategy so that if you have experienced this in your own marriage, that you can kind of see where you are in the process of healing, maybe a couple of things that maybe you left out in the process of healing. I think it's really helpful if you're getting counseling for infidelity. There might be some things that your clinician um, is not doing that I think is really important. And that's another reason why I wanted to do this episode, because I come across couples 
who are coming for help and they've gone to other counseling and that counseling was helpful to a point, but there are some key steps, key things that those clinicians did not do with the couples that I have found really effective. And when you skip some of these steps, it just takes your recovery a lot longer. And so I want to just kind of lay out what I do and the strategy that I use to perhaps give you hope, perhaps give you some tools, some things um, that you can practically do to start healing in your relationship. And again, if you have not had this happen in your marriage, there is always people around us every day in this culture who have experienced this. And I just think it's really good information for you to know. So I'm going to talk through the strategy, but I'm also going to give you some extra resources that I usually give to um, couples to look into as well. So again, this can apply to any betrayal in a marriage um, and the steps that you need to go through to start healing. So let's first talk about what happens to a marriage when betrayal has happened. Again, this could even be financial betrayal. It doesn't have to be just physical intimacy and sexual betrayal. Um, sometimes I've even seen those who have experienced pornography destroying the relationship, and that feels like a betrayal to them too. So what that does to a relationship is it honestly blows out the bottom of the marriage because the foundation of marriage is trusting. It is all about trusting that you are committing to another person and that person is going to, um, that you're going to do your best to love that person, support them to um, do the right thing. And you're trusting the other person is going to do the same and commit to the same. And so when betrayal happens, it literally, if you're thinking about like a trust bucket, because I'm going to be referring to what's this trust bucket probably throughout the whole episode. It's like taking your trust bucket and blowing out the bottom of that trust bucket. And when that happens, it doesn't matter what the other person is doing to kind of make things better or move forward, if the bottom of your bucket where you once had security and a foundation has completely been blown out, it's not going to feel like any of that is working. So we have to be honest and say that it completely shatters a person. It shatters a marriage. I even explained to somebody else that it's almost like disemboweling somebody. It's like cutting your gut open and just exposing everything. That is the level of woundedness and hurt and destruction that can happen in a relationship when there is betrayal. And so we first have to be very real with the fact that um, especially infidelity and affairs is a very selfish decision. Um, I'm not meaning that to be mean towards anybody who has found themselves in an emotional affair or a physical affair, but we can trace back those decisions, those thoughts all the way back to the beginning and talking about what led to that affair in the first place. And we can really nail it down to selfish thoughts, selfish thinking, and choosing self over choosing the marriage and choosing to do the hard work. And so there's lots of reasons that people get into affairs. Um, there's the emotional involvement. Um, we see a lot for women. It starts off as an emotional affair, but that doesn't necessarily mean that men don't experience emotional affairs as well. Um, yes, I do agree with a lot of clinicians and a lot of the resources out there that there is two sides to every story. But what I find, um, unless it's a very traumatic, very chaotic, very dramatic relationship going on leading up to an affair, I do find that it's not possible to start affair recovery by going at it with it's, you know, it took two people to have the affair because it's almost like um, having an open gaping wound that is bleeding and that person is bleeding out and it's standing there arguing over, you know, who is most to blame. At this point, it's about 
closing that wound and applying pressure and being in survival mode and dealing with the crisis first before we even get into both sides and and all of that. So I I do agree that yes, in the storyline of a couple, um, it is kind of two sides, and at some point you have to process that. But when an affair has happened in that crisis moment where everything has been exposed and everything has come out, that couple and that what I'm going to call the wounded spouse who's just found out about the affair, or it's just been revealed, they are um, they've been gutted and they are in shock and they are surprised and they are afraid and confused and insecure and everything. They can feel completely raw and exposed, um, not to mention angry and sad. It's like feeling every uh, negative emotion all at once. Um, you can't ask a person like that to start processing whether or not they had a side into what happened. So I'm not going to get into that as much today because I really want to walk you through the strategy of how do you begin working on uh, affair recovery so that you can eventually get to this place where you're working on both sides. But we can all agree that betrayal absolutely can destroy a marriage. I also want you to hear me say that I absolutely believe that marriages can go on to recover um, from an affair. And if you've listened to my interview with Michael Seitzma, um, he is a colleague. He is a mentor. Um, honestly, he is who I have learned so much of this affair recovery um, content. It comes from Michael Seitzma, Dr. Michael Seitzma out of Atlanta. He is a Christian sex therapist and a majority of the couples that he works with are in affair recovery. So I have to give huge credit to Dr. Seitzma that for teaching me some of these um, some of this strategy um, I've kind of added a lot of my own words to it, especially as it relates to the service culture. Um, but he is he is the source of of a lot of this content. And so according to Dr. Seitzma, you know, it is possible to have your marriage succeed. One of the things that he said to me once is that he has seen couples who do the hard work when both people show up to do the hard work, when both people are willing to do anything possible to save their relationship. It takes on average three to four years, which sounds like a long time. But when you think about a, a marriage that we want to last 50 years, three to four years of intense hard work is not that much at all. But if two people are willing to do the hard work that it takes, they can see their marriage become a very rich, meaningful, wonderful marriage You know, within three to four years. And a lot of that is because Previous to the betrayal, a lot of times marriages are kind of putting on a facade and, and wanting the other person to be perfect and they're trying to be perfect and everybody's hoping that nobody's going to mess up and everybody's hoping that the other person is going to be more than human. And so when something like this happens, it really, it takes away all of that facade. And what you have is two very raw people, two very raw humans that are sitting at the table and they fully see themselves for exactly who they are. And it is at that point that we decide, can I move forward seeing you entirely for who you are and what you're capable of and you seeing me entirely as who I am and what I'm capable of? Can we move forward in this journey and in this story together? And that's why on that foundation, with the support of other people, not thinking they can do it by themselves, being able to reach out to a higher power to help them strengthen themselves through this, even walking through questions of forgiveness and grace and all of that, all of that together is what leads to a deep, meaningful, more rich marriage than they would have otherwise had. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that I am prescribing um, betrayal and affairs in your marriage. So I'm all saying that only to say it is possible to see your marriage succeed and become a healthy marriage, even though this has happened in your life. But we have to start with the fact that it takes three to four years of both of you working extremely hard and committing to work on the process together with the support and resources um, outside of you. So with that caveat, I'm going to go ahead and jump in and talk with you a little bit about the strategy. There are three phases that a couple has to go through throughout their journey of healing. And when an affair has just surfaced and it has been revealed, we're in phase one. Um, despite how long it's been going on and there's all these other variables that can make it a little bit more complex with how, how long the affair has been going on, how much deception was there, um, lots of opportunities to explore the hurt and that. But when an affair has been revealed, we are in phase one. And like I said, that wounded spouse feels gutted, feels completely shocked, usually if they didn't know about it, even if they thought that something might be going on, still that reveal is the um, the reality that it has been going on and, and they're still going to be in a place of shock. And usually for the wounding spouse, the one who's been having the affair, that moment of the reveal is actually a relief because for a lot of them, they've been in so much deception. Um, they, they didn't mean or set out to start a fair. Very few people, I get this question a lot, like, did they seek it out? Like, were they intentionally wanting to have an affair? And I believe that most people are not intentionally out there trying to have an affair, trying to hurt their spouse. It is these um, tiny moment to moment decisions that over time, change the trajectory of someone and they find themselves eventually out of a series of really bad decisions um, in a relationship where now they are trapped and they're in deception and they're trapped in that deception and either they're going to get caught or they're going to have to tell the truth. Um, but not many people can get to the point where uh, they can hold that lie for too much longer. Sin always comes out into the light. That wrong will always um, come out into the light somehow. And some people even subconsciously do it. They want to get caught because they can't be trapped in that deception any longer. So that wounding spouse tends to feel a sense of relief because they've been in this place of feeling trapped in that lie for so long that once they reveal that it's going on, there's a certain component that feels better. They might feel shame. They might feel remorse. They might um, feel devastation to a certain degree. But for the for many of them, there is a sense of relief because now it's out in the open. Now we can start working on the problems. Unfortunately, though, the wounded spouse is in shock and is in survival mode. And so what I often see is these couples go to counseling and they get to a counselor and a counselor wants to work on both sides of the street. And we are dealing with a crisis situation where one is in shock and one is like, what's the big deal? I've been honest. Why can't we move forward? So this is phase one. And so in order for phase one to succeed, there are certain things that need to happen. Number one, my job as a clinician is to make sure that the wounded spouse gets through the shock and gets through the newness of that information that um, I'm going to use stereotypes here, but um, she oh, will say he or she has the permission to feel, be angry, be sad. Um, it is a grieving process. And so you have to expect that for them to have every emotion that you would experience in grief in the law and the sudden loss of someone that's important to them because they have suddenly lost their marriage and the dream of what they wanted their marriage to be. And so they're going to have waves of anger. They're going to have 
um, waves of rage. They're going to have waves of sadness. They're going to have waves of just feeling numb and apathetic. It's going to be a lot of different emotions. And I often say that grief is like ocean waves hitting a toddler. And that's often what it can feel like. So there's moments where you might even see them laughing. And at the next moment, they're just in a complete rage. And my job as a clinician is to help that wounded spouse get through that initial shock. Because what I don't want them to do and what I don't think they want to do is what I call sin in their own anger. Like it doesn't help to repay evil with evil. It doesn't help to do something destructive yourself because you have been hurt so badly that now you're going to retaliate. So if I can help that person have the permission to have the feelings they need to have, um, that's what I'm concentrating on for the wounded spouse. For the, for the wounding spouse, for the one that, that caused the betrayal, um, here's what I'm looking for. And here's what I would hope that that wounded spouse is looking for too. I am looking for what's called a penitent heart. And I got that from Dr. Seitzman as well. And I referenced the movie Indiana Jones. If you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there is this great moment where he's at the end and he's going through all these obstacles. And there's that one where um, he has, he's saying to himself, a penitent man shall pass. Like, what is the riddle? A penitent man shall pass. How does a penitent man pass through this obstacle? And every person before him had walked through the obstacle and gotten their head chopped off. And what Indiana Jones figures out is that the penitent man kneels. He kneels before God. And so when Indiana Jones kneels and kind of does this fun little Indiana Jones roll, he gets through that obstacle and he doesn't get his head chopped off. And so the wounding spouse in phase one has to exercise as much humility as possible and a penitent heart, meaning I have done something wrong. I have done something destructive. I deserve to have my head chopped off actually or figuratively or emotionally kneeling before you. I put my neck at your mercy. I know as I kneel before you that you have every right to chop my head off. But it's so important that that wounding spouse has that humility and a penitent heart. And when I see a couple where that wounding spouse does not have a heart of humility, I can't move forward. I can't help that couple move forward. And I would not expect that couple to move forward until we get there. I'll be completely honest. For those of you who are listening who might even be dabbling in an affair or maybe you have revealed that you're having an affair and you're ready to move forward and you just feel so much better that you got it out there, but you don't have that humility. I will tell you right now that what it looks like to me as the clinician and what it looks like to your spouse is that you are still actively involved in an affair. If you are numb, apathetic, cold, with no humility and just saying, it's over, what's your problem, let's just get through it, then your recovery is at a standstill. A penitent heart, a fee, an expression of remorse and humility is the only way to start a fair recovery. And I will often pause a couple's recovery until that humility is shown. And I know that's hard for some of you guys to hear out there because it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to break down and cry. It is hard to hold the guilt that you probably feel. It is hard to, it is very emotional and it, and it does feel very vulnerable to um, put your life and your soul and your marriage and everything at the foot of the person that you've wounded. But without that step, your marriage will not recover. 
Um, so those of you who are listening, that is absolutely crucial. And if you are the spouse who has been wounded um, and you're not getting very far in your recovery, it may be, be if it's because there isn't that humility, then um, perhaps that's something to think about. Why isn't that humility there? What can you do to encourage that humility, to ask for it, to even be able to express, um, I'm having a hard time moving forward in recovery because you've never really said I'm sorry, or you're not saying I'm sorry enough, or every time I get triggered and I feel hurt and I, and I cry and I bring this up to you, you just tell me to get over it instead of meeting me where I'm at and allowing you to be reminded that you caused these consequences and that you understand that you're still at, at the mercy of those consequences. So a penitent heart and that humility is absolutely crucial and is number one um, what I look for in the beginning. So more on phase one. Phase one has to have that humility, but I'm also talking to that wounding spouse that this is all about phase one is all about you earning trust back. That's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in two months. It may not happen in a year. But if we're aiming for about that three to four year mark, you're always going to be doing things to earn trust and maintain trust. But especially in that phase one, that is what we are focused on. And guess who's in charge of helping you know how to earn that trust back? It is your spouse. It is the one who has been wounded because that gives them a sense of control for them to be able to know this is what I think I need in order to even consider trusting again because that bottom of the trust bucket has been blown out. So this looks like the wounding spouse being fully transparent on everything. The relationship needs to be that affair needs to be over. There needs to be proof that that affair has been over, even if that means that you have to be rude to the person that you've had an affair with and completely block that person to cut it off, um, to deal with the consequences of cutting that off. Um, But it has to be completely shut down and cut off and then full transparency. That means full transparency on um, your devices, on your schedule, on your coming and goings, um, on anything that um, especially had to do with the affair. So if you had an affair with somebody that you worked with, then you've got to be really transparent about your job. Now, um, for the military, if you're active military, then there is the ability to change to a new assignment and that allows for a fresh start where you don't have to worry about your spouse being around that person that they had an affair with. For those that are first responders, that's a little bit harder. And so even changing districts, you know, it's a whole other kind of conversation of to what extreme can you go through to block yourself from the person that you had an affair with if it's somebody that you work with. But these are conversations that the couple needs to have to what extent and how do we show that we have proven that the affair and the relationship is completely over. So I expect for the wounded spouse to be able to have access to your device, to all of your accounts. If there was betrayal financially, that means um, access to the financial accounts. Um, It means that maybe they can track your phone. I know on the Apple devices, we have the ability to track, you know, the other Apple device. Um, That means that they can perhaps call you at work and, um, you know, ask where you are. That means that if you go to the grocery store and you're saying you're going to the grocery store, that you bring that receipt home with you that says that you went to the grocery store. Um, that there isn't, I'm going to the grocery store for milk and you've been unaccounted for for two hours. It is full transparency. And if um, you're fresh into this um, phase one, 
it may, if you are that wounding spouse that has the penitent heart, that is very remorseful, that's willing to do anything possible to save your relationship, then um, start on some of these things right now. If your spouse is in shock, they may not know what they need you to do. They may not even be ready to open up their heart, even talking about how you're going to earn trust back because they're still so angry. So um, it is remembering that their heart is guarded at this point, and rightly so. I would never expect a wounded spouse to tear that guard back down. It's a self-preservation coping skill for them to put that guard up. And it's honestly not until phase two that I'm really going to start taking down that wall. So a lot of phase one is the wounding spouse doing the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. And that is how you build trust. That's how you build trust with your with having your kids build trust with you or in a marriage or with a friendship or anything else. Trust is do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. So that is phase one for the wounding spouse. It is up to your your wounded spouse to come up with some of those rules. What exactly does he or she need you to do to make them feel safer, to to be able to see and know that you are going where you're supposed to be going? This is also a time where couples ask me, how much information from the affair should I share? Because that wounded spouse goes into a place of almost obsession because they're in shock and they start imagining the affair going on and not to mention all of the insecurity and the anger and what does it say about me and all of those questions are just going crazy in their mind. And so here is what I typically say to them when it comes to how much information do you share? Full transparency as much as possible. No deceit, no lies, full honesty on everything. Now, there is a there is a line at which information about the affair goes from being productive. And what I mean by productive is it is information that I can use to fight the battle of insecurity in my mind because of the hurt that's in my heart. That's productive. There is a line where that information crosses into what's not productive and it's actually fuel to the fire in my mind. And so what I often tell people is full transparency, like um, your spouse needs to know who you had the affair with, um, maybe where you went to have that affair, because here's the thing, your spouse needs to be able to go to the grocery store and not wonder if every person around the corner is the person you had an affair with. That is going to drive them nuts. And so you've got to give as much full transparency as possible. But if we're crossing the line into intimate details of what was done in the bedroom and into those nitty gritty, gruesome kind of details, that's where we're getting to a place where it's possibly unproductive and going to add fuel to the fire And if we think if any either of you think that it's crossing that line, that's where you especially invite in a clinician or a third party person to help you decide about that information. But to those that are listening that are the wounding spouse, the one that actually committed the betrayal, um, any amount of you not being transparent, any amount of resistance in phase one of you not being fully transparent is only going to add fuel to the paranoia and the obsessiveness of the wounded spouse, because it's just going to look like you're hiding and being deceptive again. And that's why phase one is all about you doing the hard work of full transparency um, and answering those questions and being absolutely willing to help your spouse heal from the destruction that you caused. Your selfishness caused the destruction in their heart and in your marriage. And you have to tend that, tend to that. Um, 
for a long time. Do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. For those of you that are the wounded spouse, if you have not given a list of things, even though I know it sounds patronizing, to give a list of things that that you need from them in order for them to start building that trust, um, if you've not given it, you need to go ahead and start figuring it out. You also get the control of deciding whether or not you change those rules. So in the beginning of phase one, there might be a lot of rules where he, he or she is checking in with you and telling you every little thing that they're doing throughout the day. Well, you might get to month three, let's say, and, and realize, OK, that's a little overwhelming. I don't know if I need that so much anymore. So you can cut it down a little bit, but make sure you check in with me here and here now. So you can change those rules, evolve them, add one if you need to as you get triggered and realize, oh, I didn't realize we need to work on this area. It really helped me a lot if you check in with me when you're going to this side of the town or um, or when this happens. So um, I think that's a good explanation of phase one. A lot of work going on. And that's honestly where I lose a lot of couples. Not I don't lose a lot of couples, but that's where a couple struggle a lot because the wounding spouse feels better. Right. Because, you know, let's just move forward. It's it's out there and it's over. I'm not in that relationship anymore. So let's just move forward. Well, no. There's a lot of cleanup to do and you're on cleanup duty. And these are the consequences for making those decisions. And you have to be an adult. You have to grow up and you have to clean up your mess. And that's what phase one is. And a lot of the resentment of the wounded spouse is all about, I wouldn't have to be dealing with this mess or these consequences or even having to think about these things had you not made these decisions. And so there's a lot of that initial resentment of why should I have to do all this extra hard work? Because believe me, they are internally doing a lot of hard work. And a lot of that hard work is actually just choosing to stay around you and letting you maybe try to build that trust back. And I can't even tell you how much adulting that actually is for them. So um, when you have those days where you're wondering, you know, if all of this is worth it, believe me, they are having to work just as hard and are having to also deal with the anger that they have to work that hard as well. So that's phase one. Phase two is when we get to this point um, where it shifts a little bit and it's almost like a pendulum swinging to the other side. And here's how I know if a couple is in phase two. Usually it's when I hear the wounded spouse come to me and say, he's done everything I've asked him to do. He's had a penitent heart. He's been humble. Um, He's been there for me when I have been triggered. He's been responsive. I honestly could not ask him to do anything different. There's nothing else I can think of to give him to do. He honestly has done everything right to this point, and I should trust him, but I just don't. That's when I know we're in phase two. So you can already hear in those words, it's that person has done the right thing for the right reason for a really long time. And now we get to this place where now the wounded spouse is intellectually saying, I have every right to trust him, but my heart is afraid. My heart is, is my heart doesn't want to feel fooled again. I don't want to be foolish. I don't want to be surprised again. And so I want to, out of fear and insecurity, keep my guard up and keep the wall of my heart walled up all the way to the top and not let him in. But intellectually, I know he's done everything that he's supposed to do. And I probably should let my heart um, open up just a little bit. And that is where we enter phase two. Phase two is the wound the wounding spouse continuing to do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time maybe some of those rules are adjusting and lightening up just a little bit 
Um, but they are continuing to be steadfast. They're continuing to um, prove their trustworthiness. Just keep doing that and keep showing up. But my work is shifting more towards the wounded spouse and going, let's examine your heart and let's talk through the fear. Let's talk through the insecurity. Let's talk through um, what you're afraid of and what it would be like for you to open up your heart, what it would look like for you to open up your heart. What does it look like for you to have that emotional intimacy with him again? Now, a big question that I hear from couples a lot is, um, how do I know when to be intimate with them again, especially sexually intimate? And, um, and there's no good answer for this. There's no rule for this. Um, I have known some couples, depending on how severe the betrayal was, how much hurt is there. Um, every story is different. But I know some couples wait a while, wait all through phase one before they're intimate. Um, but it doesn't surprise me when I have a couple that is within the first week of that affair being revealed that they choose to be intimate. And some of you listening who've not experienced betrayal before might go, oh my gosh, I could not do that. That would not be me. How could they even open up their heart again? Um, but you have to understand that this is grief. It's grieving. It is a lot of insecurity. It's fear. It is, um, I'm losing my marriage. It is this person that I trusted and I love. Here they are, hopefully with that humble heart um, I see my best friend who has done something terrible. And yes, it's something terrible to me, but I also see my best friend um, who is just as wounded as I am. And I long to be close with them. I don't want to open my heart up completely. I still have that wall up. But there is a longing that um, that a lot of couples feel like um, I, I want to be close because I definitely don't want to be alone either. And so it doesn't surprise me at all if a couple chooses to be intimate within even even a short amount of time. So there's no real good answer on that. Um, but when we get to phase two and we're working on that wounded spouse, if I see that wounded spouse, I'm never going to challenge a wounded spouse and say, it's time for you to be intimate with your with your husband or, or your wife or, or whatever. That's not my place. But if I'm asking them, how are they doing in that area? And they are being resistant for the sake of being resistant, meaning this my spouse has earned a lot of my trust back. They've done all the right things for the right reasons. I feel generally safe around them, but I'm just out of resentment and anger going to choose to withhold myself st still. I'm going to press in and I'm going to challenge that just a little bit because now we are, um, we might be entering into a season. The longer we get into phase two and we're not doing the hard work that now it's your turn to do the hard work. If we're just avoiding that hard work, that's really quickly going to get into a place of resentment that swings the pendulum over to a different kind of destruction. And it takes a little while to get there. But if I see somebody just being completely resistant out of entitlement, out of selfishness, out of anger still, um, and they're not really doing any work to come back, um, then I'm going to press in and see if, you know, is this, is this, is this selfishness? Um, and is it possibly going to lead to destruction in your relationship because you are now choosing to not extend that grace. We may not even be talking about forgiveness at this point. Um, but if you're just doing it to hurt the other person, um, or if we are just in so much fear, that's unrealistic um, because your spouse should have at this point dissipated some of that fear then that's where I'm going to start challenging you. And so the wounded spouse struggles with that challenge just a little bit because um, a lot of their resentment 
isn't so much about the affair, although that might come up on occasion, um, just like grief kind of resurfaces like waves hitting a toddler. So it might resurface, but a lot of the resentment at phase two is more about this is really hard. I don't want to do this work of opening my heart. This is going to take a lot of processing and a lot of risk for me and a lot of vulnerability for me. And now I'm mad that I have to do this hard work to get my marriage back. Like, I wish I could just open my heart and everything would be fine, but I'm so scared and I don't want to be made foolish again. And so the resentment is actually about part of the consequences of the betrayal are now that the wounded spouse has to do all this hard work that she otherwise wouldn't have had to do. And it's dealing with that level of resentment um, that makes it so challenging and difficult. But if we can start to do that hard work of processing and addressing insecurity and taking these slow steps, these small steps, this opening up their heart, it's touching base with triggers that might be still happening reminders and and the resurfacing of emotion when it happens Um, because you know this is like this destruction is kind of like an earthquake there's aftershocks that are going to continue to happen it's triggers it's driving by a certain location it's a phone call it is um some you know your spouse is trying to do the right thing for the right reason for a really long time and and he humanly messes up not necessarily in another affair but just didn't check in when they said they were going to and it that kind of aftershock it's almost like a relapse um, that kind of makes you have to reexamine everything. And so these aftershocks can continue even through phase two so that that spouse um, has to still be working on those things. And, and the wounding spouse is still trying to show up and be penitent and available and transparent. And now that wounded spouse has to do all the hard work of starting to tear down that wall. So that's a lot of phase two. Um, phase three is where we get to a place where the couple is maintaining their growth. They are maintaining through triggers, through anniversary dates, um, rebuilding their story. Um, And we're more so in a maintenance mode of how are you doing when those triggers come up? How are you doing with your heart? You know, by this point, we've had maybe some small, normal woundings that happen in a relationship. And so how are we dealing with that? Did it blow the bottom of that trust bucket out? Or do you feel like you're kind of getting that firm foundation back? Um, When Matt and I do retreats and we talk about this trust bucket, we always get like a styrofoam cup or like a a to-go coffee cup, paper cup. And we use it as a demonstration to kind of show what it looks like to, you know, just blow the bottom out of that cup. Um, Eventually, over time, when you've been going through these phases, it's almost like putting your hand on the bottom of the cup and it's a conscious choice for the wounded spouse to say, I'm going to put my hand on the bottom of the cup. But every time you do the right thing for the right reason and you're pouring some of that, those um, t- those um, good behaviors, you know, you're showing me some of that good behavior and the servant heart into my cup. It's still going to leak out because it's just my hand, but I'm going to do my best to keep it there. It's a conscious choice. Eventually, we might replace the bottom of the cup, not with our hand, but maybe with tissue paper. And that's where we tell couples, you've got to be very careful and very um, open with the fact that there is tissue paper on the bottom of this cup. And it doesn't take much to blow out the bottom of, of a cup that has tissue paper on it. You know, and then we move to cardboard, right? And then we might move to something that's a little bit more firm. But when you make a stupid decision and when you do another destructive behavior, even when you dabble in the possibility of another affair or when you don't learn healthy boundaries, 
Um, Matt and I tell people all the time to protect your marriage. You have to learn to be politely rude. Um, and that's hard for those of you that are super nice people or you're a Christian family that we have to love everybody. But in protection of your marriage, when you're around the opposite sex, you have to learn how to be politely rude, which means, um, no, I'm not going to linger in conversation with you. No, I'm not going to have a conversation that kind of is leaning towards an emotional discussion over email or Facebook messenger or anything like that. I'm going to loop in my spouse to those conversations, even if that seems rude to you, because I'm going to protect my marriage at all costs. So when you do something that's really small and, and you, um, you start to damage the trust that you have put in. It's like poking holes in the bottom of that new foundation. And you have to start um, rebuilding that trust again. And so you have to be mindful to do the right thing and always be on alert and aware of what the right thing is. And maybe even getting help to know how to set good boundaries with people. Be aware of your personal um, social awareness of you know how you know there's some people that need to learn that we don't stand in super close proximity to another person on the opposite opposite sex like um some people don't have that personal space thing right like and if you are one of those people that struggles with that then go and get help with that and learn that skill um i know that's crazy that some people need to learn that but i know some of you guys out there listening have been around somebody that that you wish that they would have learned that so um, so phase three is a lot about that maintenance of, you know, have we had even some small things that have happened that poked holes in the bottom of that cup? And we've got to kind of work through and rebuild some of those things. But we're really getting to a maintenance place where usually when you're working with a couple, we're getting to that three and four year mark where maybe we're spacing out the sessions and we're not in a crisis anymore. And it's really just kind of checkups on how you're doing. So the, that is my strategy. That is what I walk couples through on the three phases of recovering your marriage from an affair. It's not perfect, but that strategy, I've used it for lots of different situations, for lots of different kinds of betrayal. And um, hands down every single time, um, it's been a good strategy to make sure that everybody gets the care that they need. Um, the wounded spouse gets some of their control back. Um, but I also, because that pendulum swings in phase two, I'm able to do a good check and make sure that we're keeping things balanced between the couple and they're each doing that hard work. That is also probably where we're also talking about both sides of the story. So um, I hope that's been helpful to some of you. Now, as far as resources go, let me point out a few resources that are really common that I usually recommend to other people. Number one, if you've not listened to my interview with Mike Seitzma, I will put that in the show notes. It's an outstanding interview that talks about not only protecting your marriage, but also a little bit of that affair recovery. So I will put that um, in the show notes and link that outstanding uh, man and ministry that he has. Um, the book After the Affair is a common book that we often recommend. Um, a lot of people like it because it doesn't necessarily beat up the wounding spouse. That's often what they're afraid of is that they're going to pick up a book and they're just going to get slammed chapter after chapter. After the Affair does a really good job of pointing out both sides and helping the couple see both sides so that they can extend grace a little bit easier and open up good, healthy conversation throughout the phases. So After the Affair is really, really good. Um, and Dr. Seitzma also recommends a couple of others. Here's a faith-based one. is called Torn Asunder by Dave Carter. Um, they even have a workbook that goes along with that. That's a faith-based perspective as well as Unfaithful Hope and Healing After Infidelity by Gary and Mona Shriver. That is also faith-based. Um, that's one of his favorites as well. 
if you want to find out more about Dr. Mike Seitzma, his uh, website is intimatemarriage.org, where they do um, Christian sex therapy out of Atlanta. I highly recommend their services, even if you have to go to Atlanta to do it. I have often actually even recommended to some of our couples that are willing to travel, it is worth it to go and work with Dr. Mike Seitzma if it's something that you can do. Um, and I'm not really sure, those of you who might be listening from Georgia, if they do telemental health um, or online care. Um, so hopefully that is helpful to you guys. I will also put links to Matt and Mai's discussion on sin in a Christian marriage. We kind of cover this just a little bit too, as well as some extra resources for um, you know any kind of setback that you have in your relationship or betrayal. Um, Matt has some really good points that he shares in that podcast series as well. So I know today was a really heavy topic, um, but I realized that I had not walked you guys through those phases. And I find that if you at least know about the phases of healing, that you can at least implement some of that in your own life. If you've experienced betrayal, that you can take some of that even to your clinician and go, hey, here is um, a strategy that really makes sense to me. I'm, I've maybe not d- done these couple of steps and maybe that's why we're not getting very far in our recovery. Um, and you can take that to your therapist and kind of go through those phases. But I hear from a lot of couples that what these phases, the explanation of the phases normalizes their feelings. It helps them understand the process and what to do. There's nothing worse than having a crisis in your marriage and feeling hopeless and feeling like you don't know what to do next. And so laying out that strategy at least gives hope It gives a plan, it gives direction, it gives you resources so that you know that you can clean up destruction, you can find hope for your marriage, and you can go on to tell an amazing story. The last thing I'm going to leave you with is that um, no great story is a perfect story. Every pickup of a novel, every time you pick up a great novel, there is always a part of that story that makes you probably want to shut the book and not finish it because it's either painful or hard to read, or hard to imagine. and um, But if you stop there, then you never get to see how that story is redeemed. And so when you go through something like this in your marriage, if you are facing betrayal of some kind, or hurt, or devastation of any kind, insecurity even, I just want you to hear me say that you are in maybe chapter three of your story. And yes, it's hard to get through, but just take it step by step. Make sure that you're safe. Make sure you have good support to help you make sure that you're safe. Um, there's a lot of marriages out there that are are being destroyed in cruel ways. And you need somebody to tell you what is um, something that you can heal and something that is really going into a place of cruelty where we would say it's not a safe relationship to try to redeem. But if it is a safe relationship to redeem, it is possible. We have to get to the point where chapter three ends and chapter four begins. And chapter four is different from three. And guess what? Chapter five is different from four. And sooner or later, you're going to get to chapter seven and you're going to get to chapter 10 and you're going to look back and you're going to go, you know what? Um, I wouldn't want to relive chapter three, but we are who we are today because chapter three is in our story. And so it takes time and patience and work. And when both of you are willing to do the work, that's where we see marriages redeemed. And I know your marriage can be one of them. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. If you have questions, please feel free to reach out. And remember that the Life Giver podcast is free of sponsorship because I'm counting on you, the listeners, to share the podcast with other people and share it by word of mouth so that the audience grows and people get the hope that they need. Hope you have a great day and I'll talk to you soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these conversations as being free of advertising or sponsorship, please help me by spreading the word to other military and first responder families that might benefit from the show. If you'd like to find out more about me or Life Giver, you can find more information at www.coryweathers.com or life-giver.org.